Well, as we pivot into our sermon and start going back into the Gospel of Luke, I want to ask if you've ever known someone with a Messiah complex, like a savior complex, like these people that think that they have this like desperate urge to always be a helper. And sometimes this is just comes from like, people are just sometimes gifted in the ministry of helping other people. So they like to be in the place help, of helping. Sometimes you can meet people with the savior complex and they're just like wildly insecure. They have some like damaged psyche um, from their childhood. So they're just always trying to help in certain ways. And, and, there are still other people that just have an inflated sense of self. They have a Messiah complex because they think that they are really the Messiah in some way, shape, or form. And um, if you've known some of these people, that can be difficult to work with. Well, we know where the phrase Messiah complex comes from is because, well, there is a Messiah. And we believe that there is a Messiah and that his name is Jesus. And last week, Pastor Elliot walked us through how John the Baptist was proclaiming the coming of the king, the Messiah. And this week, we're going to see that the king is identified, that the Messiah is identified, and he isn't some insecure um, 30-year-old man. He isn't some, some person that, that thinks you know, too much of himself. He's actually quite humble, as we're going to see. And we're going to look at a text together that shows that we have a king who leads us and that this king who leads us is the king who identifies with us. We're going to see what the Messiah is like. So with that, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 21 and continue on into chapter 4, verse 13. God's word says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, the son of Hele, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Jenai, son of Joseph, son of Matthias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Besli, son of Nagai, son of Maath, son of Matthias, son of Simeon, son of Josek, son of Jodah, son of Joanan, son of Rachel, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adi, son of Kossum, son of El Madam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Jorim, son of Mathot, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Meleah, son of Menas, son of Matha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salmon, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahud, son of Sereg, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over... He was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man mustn't live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it's been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. This is the word of the Lord. Three major sections of our text today, and we're going to kind of walk through them section by section, um, and we're going to let them say what this king is like. And the first thing that we discover is that Jesus is the chosen. Jesus is the chosen. And if, let's set up the scene a little bit. If you can remember, John the Baptist is out preaching in the woods, and he's a bit of a peculiar man. Like, he's, he's a weird dude, and he's preaching in the wilderness, and his message is profound, and people are gathering. They're gathering to hear him, interested in what he's saying. He's quoting the Old Testament about um, the mountains um, being laid low and valleys being exalted, and he's talking about the coming of a Messiah, and he's, and he's baptizing people, and he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, and he's preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and telling people that one is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and that this person who is coming, this Messiah, he's unworthy to even untie the sandal of. And the text kind of picks up from this point and says that people are riveted by this message, so much so that most of them, the text says all the people, but it's probably speaking a bit hyperbolically, but but people are just flooding to get baptized by John the Baptist. But what's most fascinating is what comes next. Not fascinating that crowds will follow um, what someone says, but what's fascinating is that Jesus steps up. And after everyone is baptized, Jesus himself steps into the waters of baptism and is baptized too. And if you're like me, and you're familiar with your Bible at all, you might wonder, well, why is the perfect one getting baptized? Why is the sinless one getting baptized when he hasn't done anything sinful? Well, scholars think Jesus does this for three reasons. First, he does it to affirm John's message. So, Jesus goes into the waters of baptism because he is affirming everything that John is saying about him and about this baptism for repentance. Second, Jesus identifies himself with the people to whom he is about to minister. This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. That before he launches into his ministry, this event happens and what he is doing is identifying with the people that need a savior. He steps into the waters to show that he gets their plight. And we'll continue to explore this theme further in our sermon. But the third, the third reason Jesus gets dunked is to show that he is the one that John was pointing to. 
that he is the chosen one of God because what's about to happen at his baptism will say just that. The text says, if you look at verse 21, it says that as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in physical appearance like a dove. After all the crowd gets baptized, you just one person after another gets dunked into the water of baptism, pulled back up, Jesus walks in. And when Jesus gets baptized, something different happens because people saw it so much so that they were able to share the story with Luke that the heavens cracked open, right? And what this is saying is that when the heavens crack open and the Holy Spirit descends, that when, the, when, when we see the heavens split open, it's like God is stepping into the world. He is, he is stepping into what's happening in real space and time, and he's shining a light that Jesus is the chosen one. He was breaking into the world, showing a way forward for humanity. And that way forward was to be through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he loved, with whom he is well pleased. This is the one that the people we're expecting. But not only do the heavens crack open, as if that wasn't dramatic enough, but the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in a physical appearance like a dove. And can you imagine being in the crowd and like, you know, you're just so used to watching people get baptized and in watch walks what looked like a normal man. Remember Jesus, there was nothing about his appearance that drew people to him, like any normal man. And when he gets baptized, Heavens are splitting open. You're seeing this dove-like appearance come down on him in this voice from the heavens. And why a dove? Why? Scholars kind of speculate a couple different things, but in my study, I found this really interesting. That in Roman times, which is, and in ancient times, they believed that Romans practice a thing called augury, which is from the, we get our phrase inauguration from that, from that. And this is the belief that the gods communicated to the world through birds, that they communicated the future of the world through birds, which is mostly crazy. And um, except for the fact that like in Roman history, it's, it's kind of interesting that Romulus and Remus um, were, the, the, according to Roman folklore, the founders of Rome. And it was, it's said that they both saw vultures. And Remus saw six vultures, but Romulus saw twice as many vultures. Therefore, he was going to be named Rome's first emperor. Emperor Claudius, who you kind of see here, when he entered the Roman Forum for the first time before he was emperor, had an eagle land on his shoulder, according to legend, and that that was a great symbol that he was to become emperor. So they kind of saw the future told in birds. All right, so we have Jesus in a Greco-Roman world within the Holy Roman Empire, right? And now this time, the Holy Spirit is coming down, not as an eagle, not as a vulture, but as a dove. And what some scholars think is that what God is, is doing in all of this is communicating that this king, 
he is a king, that he is making a statement that Jesus is actually the king of all kings, that he is really the chosen one, like he just says, the ruler and overruler of all things, and that his kingdom is going to be a servant kingdom of peace. Spirit descends. The Father pronounces that this is the Messiah. This is your deliverer, and he is a king that is going to reign in peace. Luke would say in the book of Acts, if we fast-forwarded um, a few books in your New Testament, it would say he sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Jesus is the king who leads us and he's a king who comes with the message of peace and he comes to free us. And he is the king who identifies with us, which brings us to our next point. Jesus is the chosen. Jesus is the human. After this really short, it occupies two verses in your Bible in very stunning uh, story, uh, account of Jesus's baptism, Luke decides that we'll change gears and do a family tree, which is such like an odd thing if you're looking at the text together. You have like this long story about John the Baptist, boom, family tree, another story. And we're not going to spend a lot of time going through every name on this genealogy. You're welcome for that. But I do want to highlight what I think Luke is getting at. See, he, he kind of reverses the genealogy. If you look in Matthew, Matthew starts his genealogy with Abraham, and he works his way all the way up to Jesus. But, but Luke flips that, and he starts with Jesus, and he works his way backwards. And as we look at the names, we kind of see a bunch of names we don't recognize. Some people were kind of fuzzy about who they are. Is that Amos? And you want to... But I think what Luke really wants us to grab onto are several names. And that's what I want to grab onto this morning. He says, connects Jesus to several key Old Testament figures. First is David. If we were working backwards, he goes back to David. And if you know your Bible at all, David was a king in the Old Testament who God promised that someone would come from his line that would rule and reign forever and ever. And what Luke is doing is he's connecting Jesus with David, that he is a descendant of David and the king that is about to reign. That's name one. Name two is Abraham, and we could package with that Isaac and Jacob. Abraham was a key figure in the Old Testament. If you were here when we were going through Genesis, in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God covenants with Abraham. That means makes an agreement that he would be the father of many nations and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. So we have an endless dynasty. Jesus is the fulfillment of. The blessing of the nations, Jesus is the fulfillment of. And now we have that Jesus is also the son of Adam. Fascinating. That Adam, the first man ever created in the Bible, Jesus is connected to. That that God established a covenant with him 
at the beginning of creation. And Jesus is connected to Adam. He is, he is human. He is fully human. And then finally, that Jesus is the Son of God. We have here that Jesus is human and he is fully divine too. And that he is the one that people are expecting. All of history, what Luke is saying, is that all of history is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. That is why he goes through great pains to show his connection to the past, to the very first person. That all of the past found its meaning in Jesus. All of the future finds its hope in Jesus. He and he is the one that is holding all of it together in himself. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together, the beginning and the end, the Alpha Omega, the one who is now here, and he is one of us. Jesus come to identify with his people as a man, as a son of Adam, like the rest of us. You see, back in the 1960s, when there were civil rights marches, you would have, you would have people, like white people, march in those civil rights marches because they believed that, that inequality should end, that racism should stop, and they believed in what Mar- people like Martin Luther King were marching for. They would join in um, with their black uh, friends, neighbors, and family, and so on, on those marches. But, but they didn't experience the world in the same way. They didn't experience the same racism as the Jim Crow South as their black friends did. They could only empathize and sympathize so much. But Jesus comes into the world and he actually gets what his people are going through because he lives just like you and me. He's not distant looking down saying, oh, I, I kind of get what you're going through, but he actually is going through life as everyone else does. He becomes like we are. He experienced the worst of what we experience on earth and he identifies as one of us. So he's chosen, he's the fully God and the fully man, he's a human and he's also finally the tribe. A baptism, a genealogy, and then the scene changes and we shift to the wilderness. 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is tempted and tested and tried by the devil. Now, before we get into this part of our um, passage, we must avoid mythologizing the text. Um, we must remember that, that we, we actually believe in a real devil and that this real devil tempted a real Jesus. So this isn't just myth or stories with characters in it. So let's not do that. And we must also avoid that the, the temptation to think that these temptations that Jesus faced are theoretical. This is not a thought experiment for Jesus. This isn't Jesus imagining what it would be like to be tempted and then like kind of getting his frame of mind and not feeling anything. This is Jesus really experiencing temptation in the wilderness. And there are three of them. The first is Satan tries to tempt Jesus when he is really hungry. Remember, he hasn't eaten in a while. He'd been fasting. Satan tries to get him to turn stones into bread. 
And what, and what Satan, the devil, is trying to get Jesus to do is to leverage his own position, his own sonship as the eternal son of God to satisfy his own needs. He's hungry. So Jesus, leverage your authority. Turn these, turn these stones into bread. Like seek to seek your own benefit. Forget about the fact that you're the son of God and just use that to satisfy your hunger. He's trying to get Jesus to see short-term benefits and forget the purpose that Jesus came here for. But Jesus thwarts Satan by showing that he will not let his physical need of hunger be taken over, be taken as a priority over his relationship with his father. That's the first temptation. And this, then the scene moves and Satan shows him all of the kingdoms of the world in a glance. It says he'll give them all to Jesus if he bows down and worship him. So what is Satan doing? Satan is trying to get Jesus to grab a hold of power in a way other than God had planned. And as an aside, Satan likes to promise things that he can't fully deliver upon. He likes to promise things that he can't fully deliver upon. And he tries to distract us by telling us that he can deliver upon them. And so he is trying to tempt Jesus to forget about God's plan for him, to just to take the easy way out that doesn't avoid suffering and to, to bow down before him. And Jesus rebukes the devil. Scripture, he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we've got some stones to bread. Then we, we saw the kingdoms of the world and now Satan's last temptation for Jesus is a temptation at the temple. He kind of takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, Jesus, throw yourself off from the temple. See if the angels will save you. And now the temple was a place where God dwelt, remember? And so there was this assumption that it would be the safest place for Jesus. Sure, if you're the son of God, throw yourself up, off and see what happens. And Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt and to test God's care for him and his plan. And Jesus responds in verse 12, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. In each and every one of these temptations, friends, Satan tries to get Jesus to doubt the fatherhood, care, and plan of God for his life. And he tries to get Jesus to short circuit God's plan, to grab hold, to satisfy his own needs, instead of trusting his father to satisfy his needs, to grab a hold of power instead of trusting God's plan, that even though it would involve suffering, he was trying to get Jesus to take an easy way out. But Jesus won't do it. He will have none of it. He is the kind of king that lays his life down for his people. And all of our temptations are threats to us too. They, they come to us and they, th- they try to get us to, to deny our position as a son or daughter of God. 
Jesus was tempted, Scripture says, in every way that we are, and yet was without sin. Russell Moore says it this way. He says, you will be tempted exactly as Jesus was because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are. You will be tempted with consumption, security, and status. You will be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. And at the core of these three is a common impulse to cast off the fatherhood of God. See, friends, we have a king who came to lead us. And this king who comes to lead us is the king who identifies with us. And he's tempted in the same ways that we are. He understands what it is to be hungry, to have physical needs. He understands what it is to want out of a circumstance, but to have to trust into the plan of God. He gets us and he gets you. And here's what I find so fascinating about Jesus and why I think this text is beautiful. And one of the reasons why I think Luke situated this son of Adam, son of God, right before the temptation story is to draw like a little bit of compare and contrast with Adam and Jesus. If you don't know the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the first man is created, his name is Adam. And God tells him that you can eat of any tree in the Garden of Eden, all of it, all of its lush deliciousness you can take up, like except for one tree. And so you have Adam full-bellied, completely satisfied with everything that God has for him, get tempted by the devil to eat an apple or whatever it was, um, probably a grapefruit because they're sour, um, to eat this thing and satisfy his hunger, to doubt God's plan. So you have full-bellied Adam grabbing fruit when he could have eaten everything else and be fully satisfied, doubting the fatherhood of God. Now you have empty-bellied Jesus hungry from fasting, saying, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to provide for my own needs at the expense of others. And then you, we can just keep looking in the text. You have Satan promise Adam that if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like God. And then you have Jesus being tempted by Satan. Hey, I can give you all of the kingdoms. Adam takes the fruit. Jesus says, no, to that. In his weakness, in his fatigue, he chooses the plan of God that would involve suffering for us. Jesus was tempted to grab hold of power outside his plan, and he never does. Adam tries it. Jesus doesn't. He is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the king, the good king, the kind of king willing to do all for the will of his father, And he is the kind of king worth following. Each of us is going to choose to follow someone or something. And that oftentimes is either self or God. You can follow your own urges, your own flesh, your own desires. Your own desire for power. Culture tells us the same lie that Satan tells us today. But only Jesus does what culture doesn't do for us. Culture never lays down its life for us. Jesus says that the way to true flourishing is in the will of the Father. And so he is a king worth 
following if he would do that for us. He's a king who comes to lead us and he is a king who identifies with us. He's tempted just like you and me are. Yet he defeated temptation. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish existential philosopher. And um, he's a really interesting man, but he tells the story of a prince and a maiden. And this prince had was really eager to find himself a lover that he could call his queen, one day call his queen. And so the story goes that he was out on some errands for his father, the king, and he gets he goes through a section of the city where the peasants were. And while he's there, he sets his eyes on a woman who is stunning and beautiful to him. And he thinks to himself, I need to run more errands for my dad. So he runs, he runs more errands into that part of the city. And as he passes through on his horse and, and with all of his guards and royal regalia, he tries to find this woman and he thinks, how can I win her for my wife? And he thought, hmm, he could order her to the palace, right? And say, hey, you're going to be my queen. But he decided not to do that because he doesn't want the queen, the woman just to marry him because he's the prince and would be king. He wants her to marry him because she loves him. So he thinks, maybe, surely, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll go to that part of the city. And with, with everything that's around me, all of the, the royalty, I will invite her to the palace, invite her to be my queen. But he said, still, it wouldn't be for love, but because I'm a king. So he thinks one more time, well, what if I disguised myself as a peasant, masqueraded, got to know her, and then asked her to be my queen. But he felt like he would be just a phony because she wouldn't love him for him before his masquerade. So finally, he thinks of the only solution that he can. He would give up his kingly role, move into the neighborhood, he'd take up work, say as a carpenter, and during his work in the day and during his time off in the evening, he would get acquainted with the people, begin to share in their interest and concerns, speak their language, know the slang, know the talk. And in due time, should fortune be upon him, he would win over this woman's love for who he really is. And he'd ask for her hand. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the king who comes to us like us. He gets you and me. He faces the same temptations we face. He faced the same, same temptations we face today. He, he doesn't just kind of temporarily pose as a human, but he comes to us fully human and fully God. And he comes loving us so much and it should earn our love, that we should see the beauty of our king because of what he was willing to come and do for us, what he was willing to endure for us. He's the king who identifies with us. He is a king worth following, 
worth giving your life for, worth, worth pushing through temptation for because he pushed through it for us. He's a person worth remembering that because of his love for us, he holds us as sons and daughters of God so that every time we are tempted, we can follow his lead out of the temptation, remembering our fatherhood. And every time we fail, we can still remember that he came for us to die for us. He is the king who identifies with us and he is the king who leads us.